Good evening and welcome to Horror. I'm Lee. I'm Chris. I'm Adam. And we are back for the first time post-pandemic, back on the squeaky Chester fields. Yeah. I apologise in advance for the squeaky background sounds. Uh, but we are actually all in the same room recording for the first time in two Ye- years, years now. Actual Literally. years. Yeah. Fucking and hell. none of us are wearing trousers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the old days. Yeah. Um, so thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we have a quick bit of housekeeping before we get stuck in. Uh, we wanted to do a quick get well soon for friend of the show and previous guest host Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh not Adam, who we have with us, our other friend Adam, who joined us for the Castlevania episode. Mm. Um, cool, that was some time ago. That was back in this room. It was back in this room, and it was yeah, it was like episode fifteen or something. Oh, yeah. Super early days. Um, he was walking across the country, side to side, um, uh, via Ben Nevis. Mm. Um, and uh, from what I got from his message, because I was keeping track of his progress. Unfortunately, he had an incident where he fell in a stream and he's damaged himself, like, seriously. Uh, yeah, so, sorry um, to hear that, Yeah, so, get well soon, and, uh, you know, at least you did it doing something proper, like walking all the way across the country. I hurt myself that same weekend, I put my back out. I'll tell you how I did it. I was sitting on the sofa, watching Free Guy... I bent over to pump up my Reebok pumps and <laughs> fucked my back up. How ridiculous that, comparative that is teach that? You. So yeah, all our love, Adam, and uh, we shall meet up for beers and biscuits and whatnot very soon, sir. Yeah, get well soon, man. Mm. Uh, so this evening we are going to be watch. We're going to be discussing 1971's Amicus Beauty, the house that dripped blood. So. In traditional style, like back when we were all back in this room and we were still novices, Chris, as it was your first viewing of this masterpiece, what did you make of it? The the first thing that stood out to me was recognising someone who I knew of as Marcus Brody. <laughs> it turns out it's someone called Denham Elliot. Denham Elliot, No, yes. I don't think I've seen him in anything else. But I was fascinated to see him. I had no idea he played a horror film. Now, I'm going to have to just read out all I knew of him. This is how I knew him in my head. And you may recognise the bit as I start. So, Indiana Jones saying, The hell you will, he's got a two-day head start on you, which is more than he needs. Brody's got friends in every town and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. Cut to middle of fair in the Middle East. Marcus Brody wearing bright suit and white hat sticking out like a sore thumb. Oh, does anyone here speak English? Street vendor. Walter? No, thank you, sir. Fish make love in it. <laughs> so so that, that's my biggest memory of him. I had completely forgotten that he was in that movie. I really need to rewatch it again. Oh, oh he's, he's in... Because he's in um, the first and third, isn't he? I don't think he's in Temple of Doom. Uh, is he in Temple no, of Doom? I don't think he is. No. No, he's not. He's he's only he's in Raiders and he's in Last Crusade. Sorry, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so so I had to readjust slightly and see him <laughs> as, as not that character, but you know. Yeah. He rocks a chunky knit sweater in this. Mm. Yes. Yeah. He does an old, doesn't he? 
And so, yeah, so my, my general experience of this film, it's another... Uh, I don't think of it as very charming. And I'm sh- I was trying to think, what have I said that about previous films? I've definitely said it on some others, and it could be other amicus. I think it was. Possibly. And so I don't know what they do, but it's like... You know, I say some older style films take me out too much. Mm. But for some reason with this, it it wasn't... Like, I didn't need that immersion exactly. It was just a very fun, enjoyable... Um, and I, I wondered, like, is that something to do with anthologies? I know we've said this before. It's, it's almost like um, it's perhaps difficult to have a, a groundbreaking uh, sort of legendary anthology. Mm. We've had a few that we've watched. Mm. But they all seem to be a very high standard. They're all very enjoyable. Um, you know, there's something in there for everyone. And... And you kind of can't get bored, I suppose, because it changes. Yeah. It must be something about it. But I guess you could also completely ruin it. You could have, it could seem very disjointed. Um, but yeah, no, this was really good again. Um, I even liked the, the sort of bright colours. Yeah. Points. It was, that stood out a lot. I think, that's, I think that's the thing that I like about the, the Amicus anthologies particularly, is that not only are the actual vignettes themselves really good, the wraparounds are outstanding. Like mm. that's what always always gets me is you remember the stories and then you put it on and go, oh shit, yeah, that wraparound is awesome. Every yeah. like, especially with this one as well, with the detective looking for yeah. the missing actor who is the final story in yeah. story four, I think it is. Mm. Um, yeah. No. What did they explain it as? The the house reflected the personality of the people. Yeah. Like, yeah. That that was a nice you know. Closing statement. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's good. That's sort of an interesting way. So it's not like just say a haunted house. Hmm. It's like it's got something else extra. Now the only thing, and I don't know if this is a criticism or if I missed it, was there any blood dripped? No. No. There wasn't. That's the irony of it. Right. Apparently, Amicus actually asked. I think they got an X certificate because they asked for it because they gave it an A. <laughs> Where like the British, like the film classification board, and they were like. Give us an X, because it? it's good publicity. It always yeah, is, you know. Yeah, whatever, yeah. you know. It's, I mean, well, like if they get banned, it's, yeah, that's pretty good publicity. Well, I mean, there's a, there's the recent case, the you know, host the film yes. uh, that we covered we watched, a while yeah, back, yeah, the, Zoom, yeah. the Zoom one. A uh, guy who directed that has now done a film called Dash Cam, but apparently View are not showing mm. it because it's uh, because of offensive or something like that. Mm. From what I gather, it might be just that apparently the main character's particularly unlikable and right-wing, but, okay. you know, I again, that's the same reason why you don't see, um, like, Alf Garnet anymore, mm. because it's now just got to the point of you can't have a satire. It's now just like, oh, right, no, we can't show this because he's that. And it's like, you're not meant to necessarily no, agree with say, the person. I was going to say, <laughs> I, I mean... I watched American History X and thought it was a fantastic film. I, I wasn't rooting for the main character <laughs> uh, towards the end, obviously. But yeah, well, taxi like, driver. You yeah, know, you're not. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I think. But I think actually the one thing I wanted them, I wanted View to just say that it was like because I thought oh, I would be a fa- you know is it something like that and I just wanted View to be like no it's because it's filmed on a fucking dash cam. Yeah. We're a cinema. You know, watch this at home. That's where you're yeah. meant to watch it yeah. because this isn't going to be great quality. 
I thought it might have just been offensive on an aesthetic level. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, the all of the, I I have to say I think this is a because I haven't watched I haven't watched this one for a, quite a while now. Hmm. Uh, House of Drip Blood. I really think it's one of the strongest of the Amicus ones. All of the Amicus ones are good to great, mm. but this one is a particularly good example because I think everything everything works. There's not really a duff story. No. Um, and you've got a particularly strong cast. Yeah. And not necessarily, like you said, Chris, not, not necessarily... Um, people you necessarily associate yeah. with horror. Mm. I mean, like John Pertwee being in it, apparently that was originally... Um, they offered that to Vincent Price. Mm. And you can see what that... Because, yeah. like, you know, where it's like, oh, well, I've been in thousands of films and the cape and the flamboyancy and everything else. Like, You can see why it was yeah. kind of written for Vin- with Vincent Price in mind. Although John Pertwee does a fucking... Magnificent job. I was going to say, he's got that level of tongue-in-cheek that, as you say, you'd expect from Vincent Price. Like, mm. he just had it perfectly. Like, that air of, I'm above all this, and just yeah. so taking it out on the staff. And so he was the fourth one, the arrogant actor. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul Henderson, the, the actor who's being searched for, yeah. And I actually like the... Um, it's very close to how he plays the third Doctor... Uh, and he's pretty much dressed how he was dressed for the first <laughs> series. Seriously, it's the, it's the same look, pretty much. Um, but it's that same sort of thing of... I think because when he, when, he took, when he took the role of the Doctor, it was like everyone was like, oh, he's a comedian. You know, how can a comedian be playing this role and everything else like that? So he went completely the other way with it, and he's probably like the straightest... Mm. sort of no-nonsense, serious version of that character because everyone else is quite sort of jokey or jovial or whatever like that. And he was always a miserable git (laughs) and quite sort of snappy and snarky and stuff. So it's sort of very sort of kind of similar. So just to run through them all quickly, just to remind the listeners who Mm -hmm. might not have watched it recently, uh, so there's the wraparound story, as we mentioned, is the detective who is trying to ascertain the whereabouts of the missing actor. Yep. Uh, then we have Meth- uh, Method for Murder, which is the Denham Elliott story with the murderer Dominic. He's yep. writing a story. He's gone to the house to write his book about a killer and he keeps seeing him in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next story is Waxworks with Peter Cushing and the amazing Joss Eklund. Yes. Um, which is... Peter Cushing is a retired... Stockbroker, he's moved somewhere near wherever this house is. So it's somewhere, it seems to be like a seasidey town. There's, yeah. there's a waxworks there, and one of the characters in it looks just like a woman who he loved and was in a love rivalry with Joss Ackland for, mm. um, and that goes on from there. The third story is Sweets to the Sweet. Christopher Lee has a Christopher Lee is a single father with a daughter. Uh, he gets in a nursemaid to come and look after her, and he's very strict and over the top with the daughter, and we discover that there may be good reason for that. Can I say that that was my favourite one? It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. Like, it just really stood out. 
Um, I was trying to decide is it because I'm looking at the way he's parenting and you know it's obviously you know there's a twist there and it, it unfolds but just yeah it seemed to have kind of a lot in it it, it mm. seemed like pretty good story. I, I liked the nanny as well yeah and, and of course the girl was fantastic that little girl if I'm wrong is that also the little girl who's in the Christmas the Christmas Slayer episode? Yeah, she's from the crypt. She's the yeah Chloe Frank. She she lets in the um, she lets in Santa. Yeah, the murder Santa in the Joan Collins story. That's right. And she's also in um, the Uncanny. Mm. You know where there's the two the the little girl. Yeah. Yeah, she's yes. the up. Uh, yeah. And of course she is. Yeah, so she's actually weirdly mm. quite a veteran of, uh, like, these films and everything. And, yeah, and she's actually really, really good. I find her, I found her quite funny. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think she was, like, genuinely... Um, let's face it, you're holding your own with Christopher Lee yeah. pretty much. You know, it's pretty... And I can't imagine that... Because that's the thing as well. It's Christopher Lee. So when it's like, he's being a bit of a dick as a dad, you're thinking... He is Christopher Lee. Maybe he's just being a dick. So it's sort of, you know, you sort of... I can't imagine that Christopher Lee would have been very tolerant of... No. Of anyone ever. No, no. <laughs> apart, from, apart from Peter Cushing. Yeah, and Vincent Price. Yeah, it, it, ta- it takes Peter Cushing to see Looney Tunes cartoons, but other than that, everyone else <laughs> gets very short shrimps. <laughs> um, and then the last the last story is The Cloak, as we said, with John Pertwee and Ingrid Pitt, mm. uh, where he plays an actor on a vampire movie. Uh, he isn't taken by... Because it's a budget movie, he's very pissed off about the quality of everything so he goes to get himself his own cloak and it may have a darker side behind it which and again buys the cloak off of the magnificent Jeffrey Bailden yes fucking balls to the wall I'm just going to be weird yeah yeah because when he's in because obviously we talked about him when um, he was in um, not uh, it's not Tales from the Crypt it was or is it Tales from the Crypt? I can never bloody remember which one. He, yeah, it is Tales from the Crypt because he's in it quite briefly. Hmm. At the, so we sort of discussed him back in that episode. But in that, he's just doing a straight role. Hmm. Very much how, say, for example, he plays the warder in Porridge. Hmm. You know, he's he's normal. He's yeah. daft as arseholes, but he's normal. Whereas this is fully blown arch mad as fuck eyebrows yeah. stroking a cat which prompted Claire's uh, catchphrase uh, which is whenever there's an animal in a film she just goes that cat's dead now because <laughs> she knows it upsets me so, but um, yeah and he, he plays sinister particularly yeah. well like in this kind of over the top mm. you oh, know yeah. partly comedic he does it that's Standing job in his it's a small role but it's amazing yeah it's what you want from the thing because there's you know something like that would be really out of place in a full blown movie mm. but in this it's you know everything has to a certain extent a shorthand yeah to get where it needs to be so yeah you're only in it for that scene Go fucking nuts. Yeah. You know, really, really take to it, I think. And um, and then obviously him and John Pertwee ended up in um, uh, Wurzel Gummish together because 
Yeah. Jeffrey Belden was the crow man who essentially was his god. Do you know what I said? This I, I don't remember anything about that show. Mm. But we were sitting there and we were watching it, and Jennifer said, "I know him." And that I said, "Catwoman." Oh, it's Wurzel Gummidge. Uh. Oh, went, sorry, John Pertwee. And yeah. yeah, and she went, "No, no." She was talking about mm. Belden, and oh, I right. said, it, "And she went, no, it's not." And I was like, oh, "Sure, it is." Then we looked up. I was like, "Oh no, it's John Pertwee, who's also in the same story." Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's Cat Weasel, I was thinking. I was like, those two are so similar, mm. that's why I can I confuse them sometimes, because I don't remember anything about either show particularly. No. But they both looked very similar. So. He, in the show, he did. I mean, basically, it was almost like he'd created Wurzel in his image. Yeah. Because they looked the same and had similar sort of hair and stuff, mm. but obviously he was real. Uh, or not like, well, he wasn't a fucking scarecrow. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? like, um <laughs> But yeah, and but yeah, I think they're all really fucking strong. Mm-hmm. They're really strong fucking stories. And um, funnily enough, you saying about that, Chris, with Denham Elliot, he was in. Um, he's in another Amicus that we did. He's involved with mm-hmm. horror because I can't remember. He's not the one who gets his hands cut off, but he he's one of the people who rip off Tom Baker in the um, one where he does voodoo paintings that. Kill you, oh. Fenton Breedley. Yes, but he's not yeah. playing Fenton Breedley. That was Terence Alexander. So, <laughs> but he's yeah, he's in that, and also because I know that it's I always know that it's one one with you. He's the voice of Cowslip in Watership Down. All right. So you know, but that that story, me and uh, former guest and uh, sibling of Lee, uh, me and Dean, I don't know. We probably spent about three months keep saying to each other, you can thank my strangler for that. Because <laughs> it just sounded filthy. It just sounded filthy. You know. <laughs> but also, yeah, it's, it's just the weirdest thing in the world that it's like, oh, well, I've got this, uh, I've got this guy who essentially looks, looks a bit like an illustration of Frankenstein. He's got enormous teeth. He laughs like he's been lobotomised. What's his name? Dominic. Yeah. And it's like, I feel that's slightly at odds. With, yeah, but I, there we go. You that know. name is definitely a placeholder. You should have yeah. gone back and... Uh... Unless he was just going to he was gonna shorten it to Dom at some point. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. I, just, I always love to see Denham Elliott in anything. Yeah. Which, I, he's just... He's such a fantastic actor. And he did a lot of the, a lot of the horror TV shows that were on... Mm, yeah, that's a mystery and imagination, and all those types of things he did. Yeah, because he's in Rude Awakening in Hammer House of Horror, which is one yeah. of my favourites of that series. Maybe we'll have to do that as an offshoot. You know, we'll do the Hammer House of Horror for. Uh, oh, I love those because they're genuinely they're pretty. I mean, fortunately, I think probably because it was just one series, so it's really strong. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's much in that. That's I don't think there's any really duff ones in that. All of them are pretty great, and they have some, and and pretty amazing casts for mm. a TV show because it's mostly movie, uh, like people who've been in, you know, Peter Cushing's in there, Brian Cox and um, Patricia Quinn and yep. so on and so forth. Yep. You know, there's a lot of, and yeah, Denham Elliott's in in that one, and um, he was also in a film. Called well, he's in the film and the TV version of a uh, thing called Brimstone and Treacle, which is a Dennis Potter play, um, in which basically it's 
it's kind of like the the for for want of a better expression, the moral of the story is that a good thing can come from not necessarily a good place, mm. and basically, Satan turns up in human form, and Denim Elliot's daughter's in a like vegetative coma, and he basically revives her from her coma, but it's not good. <laughs> as it never is as it never, well, well not only that it's Dennis Potter as well so it's uh, <laughs> uh, and also he uh, he was in Pete and Dud's Hound of the Baskervilles because he's oh. Stapleton with the dogs the forever pissing dogs in yeah. um, in that one um, but also yeah the Signalman is another key thing from yeah. the Ghost Stories for oh, Christmas I watched that this Christmas so, that is still a Astonishingly good. It's a brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant version of a an amazing story. Mm. But yeah, so um, he's, he's he was in like mystery and imagination and thriller, but also he do he, he turns up quite a lot in comedy as well because he was in like ripping yarns and rising damp and stuff like that. Yeah. And he's actually, again, he's like a lot of the people in this. He's one of those people who sort of straddles between the two. Mm. Um, where it's like, oh, you're you're very good for horror and you're very good for comedy. Yeah. And I think it's that ability to play it straight because you don't... Basically, yes, Jeffrey Baldwin's are magnificent in this, but a film full of Jeffrey Baldwin's would be a bit much. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this, he sort of... He grounds it. Yeah, he really way. feels... Re- I mean, the amount... And not that, the amount of bloody fags he gets through in this. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know he's a writer, but, he, you know... I don't think Dominic had much to do, you know, probably just... <laughs> I thought that as well, and the fact that he's pouring himself a drink every two minutes. I was like, mm. do you know what? If I was drinking straight whiskey and trying to write, I would probably write two pages and then be like, yeah, this is all out of focus. Like, the way he just guzzles it away while yeah. he's working. No, he's just slamming it. <laughs> do, you know, is that, like, do you think they would do that now? Or is that something of the era? Because... I, I, to, to tell you the few tr- films where there's quite a lot of drinking. To tell you the truth, I I think it's the era. I mm. don't think it would be much in the same way. What was the what was the ad the advertising show Mad Men? Yeah, and everyone kept going on about the fact that everyone in it was constantly chain smoking yeah. and drinking at work, and it was like, yeah, because that was pretty much what, like, an what excessive was, yeah. practice yeah. back in those days, and I think similarly with this that. People who watched it at the time, that would have not even been a thing, (laughs) you know. And to a to a greater or lesser extent, you know, I think, frankly, I'll I'll put in a I'll put in a vote now to say that I think we should bring back drinking at work. (laughs) Not not necessarily driving, not necessarily if you're a surgeon, but frankly, if you've got an office job and you get in the bus, fuck it, you know. I used when I used to work on a very busy sales floor of over a hundred people. We were, we weren't discouraged from going to the pub at lunchtime, because mm. um, it was like a night shift. So you worked from two in the afternoon till nine at night. Yeah, yeah. and they were like, "Yeah, go over there, have a couple of beers." Like you're a lot more chatty when you come back, and yeah. like it gets people, you know, off edge. And yeah, like a, you know, it, it did used to work for some people. So it, it, in a, in the right environment, I think it this mm-hmm. it greases the wheels for most. Just don't feel Mitchell it. That's the that's the key. That's the thing. See, I've got to admit, I miss drinking during the podcast because I used to mm. denim Elliot it when we were recording. <laughs> but 
because it just made it because because it just made me forget the microphone and just waffle like mm. we were all just sitting around having a drink. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I'm on the wagon. I'm currently drinking alcohol-free Hogard and just to try and trick my brain into relaxing, but it's not working. So. No. Um, and um, I'm going to have to put a shout out for Robert Lang, who plays the psychiatrist in this, who hasn't got that big a role, but a is great, but also he's just one of those faces who pops up in loads of things. You know, he's um, Denim Elliott's psychiatrist, and is the guy with the, the bald guy with the moustache. Yeah, yeah. And he just always he rocks up in so many things, and just is really, really great. But he's mostly sort of generals, policemen, <laughs> or psychi or doctors. He yeah, sort of yeah. seems to be authority type. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. But also, he just has a lovely line in doubt is the best way I can put it. <laughs> is, is that he has a really good way of sort of... Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's real to you. <laughs> you know, he, he does that sort of... That that kind of characterisation mm. quite sort of, quite well. I really, I really enjoy it. I really enjoyed him in that. Um, and also, I mean, like... I, I mean, it's possibly... of. Because the weirdest thing is, is you've got, obviously, Denim Elliott's not that great a writer. Because hmm. it's like, oh, who's this? Oh, this is Dominic. He's my strangler. He, <laughs> which again, still sounds dirty. Um, <laughs> but he roams the country killing people for no good reason, laughing maniacally. And I'm like, yeah, you haven't really put much backstory in this, have you, mate? Pretty one-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And then, but then at the end of it, it's like, Tom, No. My name's Dominic. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's... <laughs> oh, that's the other thing we should have mentioned. So all of the stories in this bar one uh, are stories by Robert Block, who, again, a lot of his stories were often used by the Amicus guys. Mm. Um, apart from Waxworks, which was written by someone called uh, Russ Jones. Yes. He um, doesn't get a credit on this, but he wrote a lot of... like. No, um, EC comics, like, he, oh, horror comics rather, not EC. But. Yeah, so I looked him up on IMDb, yeah, and he did a lot of the EC comics, and he, he, that was how he started, and then he got into movies from there. So this afternoon, as a bit of research, uh, I went on YouTube and watched the whole of Gallery of Horror. Oh, wow! Cause, yeah, because that came up in, in my notes, and I was like, oh, I've never seen that, so... Good. Yeah, well, as I mentioned to you, you know, off mic, uh, my plan was to watch, see what the kind of wraparound was like, watch the first story and just get a feel for it. Um, and I sat through the whole hour and 22 minutes of it because I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. Um, they're a bit off the wall and they're very cheaply shot. It looks, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like there's a lot of the matte painting stuff and it looks like they've literally stolen it from um, the Roger Corman movies. Oh, right, yes. Because um, yeah. it's exactly the same castles with the lightning, and, and I'm sure they've literally just lifted it out and stolen it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really good. It's well worth watching. Um, all, of the, all of them are original stories, uh, apart from the last one, I thought, because the very last story, which is only about ten minutes, um, yeah, and it's a man named Harker going to Transylvania to see... Uh, Count Alucard <laughs> uh, regarding buying Carfax Abbey, but it's worth watching because it does have a twist in it. It's the 
it, it starts off just as Dracula and then takes a whole new spin. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. It's got like a three point four on IMDb, which is which is terrible because I mean it definitely deserves more than that. Mm. It's and it's very if you're in the mood for one of those um, you know like the American international type mm. ones. Yeah. Yeah, it it's, it works alongside those perfectly. I I really enjoyed did it. Did you have to set your expectation? Correct. I think I did. I think because it had such a low IMDb, I was like, this is clearly gonna be dire. Yeah. But I'll give it a go. Yeah, and I think going in with that expectation, I was surprised. I mean, I it, I, it it's never gonna rival the house that drips blood. It's mm. nowhere near that league. But if you want something new that you haven't seen before. It's it, it works as and it's on uh, YouTube, so you can just watch the whole hour and twenty minutes. Fantastic! Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to do that. Because f- from uh, the standpoint of Robert Block, this was his third film for Amicus. Hmm. So he did the Skull, which isn't an anthology film. But what an awesome um, movie, though. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, great, great film. Um, then he did Torture Garden, and then after this, he did Asylum. Um, and Asylum, again, can't wait to show you, Chris. Because yeah. uh, you know, and and Torture Garden, they're both they're both great. But still yeah, not seen Torture Garden. I um, oh yeah, I was meant to bring that round. I do apologise because <laughs> that's yeah. all right. Because I upgraded to Blu-ray, so I said like happy DVD. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so so yeah, so we've got then you get the second story, like the waxwork story. Um, apparently, this this was filmed just around the time when Peter Cushing's wife became ill. Uh, yeah. And apparently, he was trying to actually get out of the con- he was trying to get out of doing mm. the film because he didn't want to leave her. Mm. Um, but it was contractual obligation, so he said. And it's not like he doesn't perform. Yeah. Do you no, know what I mean? That's no. that's the thing. I think he I think he was too professional and had too much, you know, pride and everything to not give. His best, mm-hmm. but yeah, under the circumstances, it's sort of yeah, it's sort of fairly sad. But you've got, uh, but again, it's the weirdest story in the world because I don't know about you guys, but I felt that maybe they weren't that bothered about the girl because yeah. they did seem like an old couple. Yeah, yeah, they do. You know, what I mean? <laughs> sort of, that's how it sort of comes over, and it's like you've got the whole sort of you've got the whole sort of fighting over the girls thing, and it's like I don't think you, I think you guys might have missed a trick here. Yeah, yeah. You know? But yeah, so you've got so you've got Mister Cushion, but obviously you've got the incredible Joss Ackland, mm. who um, awarded the CBE in two thousand and one. Mm. Performed the first gay kiss on the West End stage with Dylan Elliott oh, in, wow. in a play called Bermondsey from 1971. Um, he's the eccentric passenger in the music video for the Pet Shop Boys Always on My Mind. And the voice of so much, so many advertising, because he is. Mr. Kipling makes exceedingly good kicks. Oh, is he really? And he's also good old yellow pages. Oh, I didn't They're know not that. there for the nasty things in life, like a block drain or a leaky roof. <laughs> it can also be there for the nice things as well. So yes, that's his. Um, mm. So you know, I mean, he's all over the fucking shop, and 
you know, he's still out there. He's he's in Rasputin the Mad Monk. He's in the the Hammer Rasputin. I have not seen that. I've in still not seen 15 that. Fifteen years or so. I need to read. I remember it being like I remember Christopher Lee just going apeshit. Oh, like, Christopher totally. Lee. Yeah, from what I get, because I've still never seen it, but I gather that Christopher Lee in that is quite quite. You know, going for it, and it's his favourite role, I think, or one of his favourite roles, because I'm pretty sure the Wicker Man is. Remind me before you leave; I shall send it home with you. Oh, it would be wrong for you to go another day without seeing it. Um, But obviously, and to our generation, obviously, he was uh, in Lethal Weapon Two, and the reason why thousands of children in playgrounds screamed diplomatic immunity Mr Riggs <laughs> at each other um, and then he's the, the uh, he's the main bad guy in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey um, villain one of our dinosaurs is missing um, oh what was it uh and he's in the Copper Beaches. I was going to say, Brett. my favourite yeah. performance of his is in the Copper Beaches. Yeah, he is great in that. And he was in Mystery and Imagination, Tales of the Unexpected, all those sort of things. And he's the voice of the Black Rabbit in Watership Down. Oh. Mm. And he also, I forgot about this, he's the narrator of the documentary I've got, In Search of the Great Beast 666, which is a documentary about Alistair Crowley. Oh, no, he looks a bit like Alistair Crowley. He could play Alistair Crowley really well, I think, actually, yeah. Um, The weirdest thing is that the girl in the photograph is actually the actress Nicola Paget, who sort of got more famous through the sort of 70s and 80s, and mostly on TV and stuff like that. But if I was her, I'd have a word with that props bloke. Because that's the only failing of that story, is that it's like, it looks so much like her. No, it don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks so much like her. If you, if you know, if I tried to make a sculpture of her yeah. on a sex doll, it's, yeah. it's not good. It's, and then subsequent, they should have got Christopher Lee's daughter to have a go because her wax figure of Christopher Lee looks more like Christopher Lee than that wax figure looks like Nicola Paget or Christopher Lee or Joss Adler. They're all a bit. They're all a bit big face, you know. So, but um, but the guy who plays the proprietor of the um, wax museum is a guy called Wolf Morris, um, who is um, Jewish Ukrainian. But he's along with another actor in this. He spent a great deal of his career playing a variety of ethnicities, uh, including Japanese, Tibetan, Mexican. And Middle Eastern, so he was, yeah. Like I, I, I appreciate there weren't that many actors over here, possibly of those ethnicities, so it might have been difficult. But he doesn't even look anything like anything. No, no, this is the this is the bizarre thing. It was almost like it was almost like shorthand of swarthy. Was like sort of right, right. That means you can play most of the rest of the planet, apparently. Oh. And it's a bit, but weirdly enough, the other one who's in it, who is, um, oh, what's his name? John Bennett, who is the copper. Mm. Um, now, <laughs> he again, um, he did play um, Lee Sen Chan in The Talons of Wang Chiang, a Doctor Who story. So he's in yellow face for that. And you're like, again, what, why? Uh, you know, it's, I mean, he's a good actor, but. Yeah. 
But he, <laughs> but he, yeah. It, Why would you not go for someone who, again, obviously, of, we, of wouldn't, the right we wouldn't do it now because yeah. we can easily get actors. Yeah, we have lots of actors in this country from other places, and as I appreciate, on a lower budget, you couldn't ship somebody in, and there might not be someone to get on hand who's necessarily the correct ethnicity. But you'd at least pick an actor who has similar features. Well, so it'd be easier. Say, for example, going back to our last episode, Burkwok, who said that he's played every Asian nationality. He's played Japanese, Chinese, uh, Korean, and but yeah. Because he's in the right ethnicity, exactly, yeah, yeah. you know, to sort of be able to pull that off. But it's, no, it's a wonder. It really is. But I don't know, because, again, John Bennett is a very, it's a, because I love John Bennett. I think he's a great actor and he's brilliant in this. But the weird thing is, is under normal circumstances, I feel that him and John Bryans, who plays Stoker, hmm. would be the other way around. Because John Bennett looks sinister. Yeah. You know, although obviously his greatest moment is in Porridge, where he's the doctor who says to Fletch, right, you see that flask? Fill it. What, from here? <laughs> so, um, but he, um, yeah, John uh, John Bryans, uh, who played Stoker, is a lot, you know, he could play the copper, hmm. and you'd have John Bennett looking a bit, Sinister and a bit sort of emaciated, and yeah. a little, sort of you know, because, um, yeah, and it's just I like the fact that it's switched around because Stoker's much more menacing for being quite normal, mm. um, in, in inverted commas. <laughs> but he was, um, I recently finished watching Blake Seven, and he turned up in Blake Seven a couple of times, but once as a torturer called Shrinker, which is just a great name anyway, but. He is so good in it because it's just basically they capture him and it's like, right, we want to know this information and everything. And it is just his blubbering cowardice of like, you know, he was this imperial torturer. So he's like used to getting his own way and being thought. And then without any guns or backup or anything else like that, he is a sniveling wretch (laughs) of a pathetic human being. And he's very fucking good in it. So um, that's, that's one of the other things that I really liked in this that I'd actually forgotten until I rewatched it the other way is the way that the last story then folds into the wraparound mm, and mm. it all like I'd forgotten that it it did that and that like that's a very unusual thing but I really enjoyed that. I think also speaking of speaking of the last story, obviously we have the mighty John Pertwee in there. Yeah, father of Sean, brother of Bill, but we also have. Chris's first, well, I assume Chris's first experience with Ingrid Pitt, the incredible Ingrid Pitt, um, who, again, brilliant at the comedy side of it as well as the horror side of it and everything. Um, Polish born, real name Ingush, I'm going to say this wrong, Ingushka Petrov. Her German father was a rocket scientist who refused to work on the Nazi military rocket program. Mm. So five-year-old Ingrid, along with her Jewish mother, uh, were interred in Stithof concentration camp, which is near Gdansk now. Well, it was, it was called Danzig then, but yeah. obviously, like, Glenn Gdansk changed his name to Danzig <laughs> as a tribute. Um, yeah, they were taken into the nearby woods to be shot amongst a group of prisoners. Mm. 
but Ingrid and her mum managed to escape and were rescued by partisans. They lived rough with them for the, for the last year of World War Two. After the war, they searched for Red, Red Cross refugee camps for her father and older sister, who had also been sent to another concentration camp. They did all reunite, but her dad died shortly afterwards, uh, and apparently he was just broken. He yeah. just really... Yeah. Mm. Um, there's an animated short called Ingrid Pitt Beyond the Forest, which is her narrating the story of that. Mm. Um, I think it came out after she died, but it was um, it's a really good little piece as well. Um, she was living in East Berlin. When she, then she was living in East Berlin. She joined Bertolt Brecht's Berliner Ensemble Theatre Company, but was forced to flee to the West on the night of her planned stage debut because she'd been openly criticising the communist authorities. And basically, she got a message saying, "Right, the Stasi are coming for you." Oh, God. Um, during her escape, she swam across. She swam across the Spree River and was rescued by an American soldier, Loud Roland Pitt who she married and moved to California with. <laughs> they had one daughter, and after their divorce, Pitt kept the surname. She moved back to Europe to pursue her career in acting, appeared in several films before the two Hammer films that propelled her to stardom, obviously, um, Countess Dracula and uh, Vampire Lovers. Um, outside of acting, she wrote several books, including both fiction, non-fiction, and autobiography, had a regular column in Shivers magazine, with her third husband, ex-racing driver Tony Rutlin, she was commissioned to write for Doctor Who. The unused script was eventually adapted as an audio play by Big Finish. She was an obsessive cricket fan, a karate black belt, held a student's pilot's licence and had a passion for World War II aircraft. Black. Having mentioned this on the radio, she was contacted by the Air Museum at RAF Duxford to have a flight in a Lancaster bomber. <laughs> and then, uh, and eventually, yeah, died in uh, 2010, heart failure. Um, although I've got a fantastic quote from her. I am mad about breasts, especially mine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and but yeah, Ingrid Pitt. I mean, it's a fucking life and a half. Before yeah. that, her that life is, is more of a film than yeah. most of the films she's been in. I've got to say, of all of the Hammer Glamour girls, she is by far my favourite. Like her, like whenever you see her interviewed or anything, she just. Oh, nails it she, yeah, she's she, such a personality she really and and that's the thing as well is it's, it's one of again it's one of those things where it's she curiously I think exudes like a sort of diva quality hmm. but apparently was not in any way shape or form a really? diva she but was yeah. very sort of like like no one had no one said that she was like had ears or graces or was hmm. a shitty but you know everyone yeah. as always everyone loved Working with her and everyone loved Ingrid Pitt. I was good. I, it isn't a terribly long story because I don't remember what the details were. But um, the guys at South End on Sea, the guy who puts that on, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but he met her for something. They were working on a project. Um, yeah, because uh, as we said before, Jennifer worked with his wife. Mm. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that was what she did. met, and she was uh, yeah, just apparently as amazing one-on-one as she is you know yeah. in front of the screen so yeah just an all-round outstanding but and you you get it through in her acting as well which even in this where she plays as you say the sort of haughty diva mm. she does it all with that kind of cock-sided smile she, that's yeah. kind of <laughs> I, and the weird thing is is her and John Pertwee are an amazing couple yeah I think they that just genuinely you get the feeling that they 
you, do you know what I mean? They, they feel like they would actually like natural, be a, yeah, yeah, they yeah. do feel like a couple. It's mm. like sort of um, quite a uh, quite a weird one, but it's sort of just it just works right. But mm. I mean, all in all, I mean, it's uh, I'm trying to think. I don't think there's much else. Um, Oh, we oh, did. We yeah, skipped. We we did skip over the uh, the Christopher Lee one. Oh no, bit. that's very true. Actually, um, yes. That st- it, it, I love the twist in that story, because you do watch it the whole time thinking, oh, that poor child is being <laughs> yeah. so mistreated by her father, and then it's like, oh no, she's a little shit, and if sure. she gets half a chance, she'll kill us all. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, I'm, not only that, but also I think it's a very good because it's that use of. Christopher Lee's natural sort of dour authoritarianism mm. that you kind of and the fact that he's such this like this huge bloke so mm. you're like sort of like well what what harm can a little girl do yeah. but again and when the fear comes out it's really quite so do you know what I mean it's such a because it's rare to see Peter Cushing off his off his guard when he's when he's scared, it's really quite affecting. Yeah, it's it's unnerving to see yeah. someone, as you say, with that kind of demeanour and that bigger stature suddenly act terrified. And he, it, it, like you say, it's so rare to see him do it. And he's just outstanding. I think mm. this, although it's a very short performance, yeah, I think he squeezes a great deal into it. And it's, yeah, it, it's... It is one of my favourite ones of this film, if I'm honest. Yeah, and 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 the 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 tutor that he brings in is played by uh, Nairi Don Poulter, um, who is also in From Beyond the Grave, uh, but we've not again another amicus that we've yet to get to. Yeah. So many amicus, so little time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she, her main thing was she played uh, Contessa Caroline de Contini in a ITC thing called, uh, ITC TV series called The Protectors. And that was kind of like her, like five minutes of, 15 minutes of fame was when she was in this show because it was like, ev- everyone was just obsessed with her because she was always like really glamorous mm. uh, and everything, which is obviously, you know, I mean, it, it's toned down in this because she's not turning up in like, full white pantsuits and sort of, you know, <laughs> silk scarves and shit like that but it's a, but again I think everyone top to tail I think the cast in this is so good and everyone's like sort of going for it properly and actually it's really difficult to spot her, but Joanna Lumley's in it as well <laughs> she's in she's in the last story like the, the John Pertwee vampire story yeah. but she's in that but I think she's only ever seen from behind, but you can kind of tell it's her. But she's got a big, like seventies hair. Mm. Um, but yeah, so she, so yeah, so Jonah Lumley's in it somewhere. Um, but originally, um, the director Peter Duffel, who mostly did TV actually, but um, he wanted to call the film "Death and the Maiden," hmm. and um, it was Milton Zabotsky because obviously it's Milton Zabotsky and Max Rosenberg, yeah. Amicus, bloody bloody blah. Um, he wanted to call it the house that drip blood, but the the piece of music that Peter Cushing's listening to in it is Franz Schubert's um, Allegro for String Quartet Number no. Fourteen in D Minor, which is nicknamed Death and the Maiden. Mm-hmm. So he kind of sort of slipped it in there. Also, I don't know if you spotted it, but there is a Christopher Lee waxwork in the waxworks. No, I didn't see. Yeah, that. if you if it, it sort of. 
he goes they walk past it quite a lot but they never yeah. sort of uh, but it's clearly like it's Christopher Lee's Dracula that's in yeah. in the background and everything um, the house rather unfortunately is Yew Tree Lodge um, which was on the uh, Shepperton back lot so oh. uh, but um yeah, I mean, it didn't mean didn't mean the same thing then, did it? So it just meant a tree. So, <laughs> but I think actually they do call it that in the film. I think someone calls it like Yew Tree House still or there? something. Not sure. I don't think so. Um, it, it may well be. I mean, I, I, I didn't um, I didn't see anything sort of. I didn't see, because I'm not sure because Shepperton has been like redone time and time again. Yeah, so that's what it I may have do. gone in like one of the developments. I don't yeah. know. Because I think, uh, and again, it's probably something where it's not really, eventually you're probably like, how many films are we going to do in this? Yeah. Because we don't do those type amicus of films no. anymore. Mm. Um, you've got, right at the start, there's a thing called, uh, right at the start you do see a book called The Haunted Screen, um, which is a uh, book about German expressionist horror films. Um, but also it's one of the books that's in the big pile that uh, John Pertwee's reading when he's oh, really? um, researching. Now, ger- German Expressionist horror films. Yeah, so it'd be Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, Faust probably, the, the Golem. Does Haxon fall in? Haxon kind sure. of falls in, but I mean, Haxon was always a documentary. Yeah, really, yeah. So. Although I still think we... We do Haxon. We got to do Haxon or something. I, I showed it to Jennifer for the first time. Uh, Had she not seen it? Yeah, I, she'd never seen it. I find that impo- I find that weird because I I would have thought between me, you, and Dean, <laughs> we would have bullied her into watching it. <laughs> <at some point. laughs> I think it just never. I think it was one of those. We uh, on a regular basis it came up, and every time she went, I've not seen that, and every time we went, right, that's it. Next week we're doing that, and then something yeah, else. Came. Yeah, we never yeah. quite. Um, but yeah, no, obviously she absolutely loved it, and I. The thing I love most about Hexen is seeing because it is so old. It, it's a bit like Vampire. It's that window into the time that it was made, mm. just as much as it is looking back at the history that it's kind of covering. Yeah. Um. Oh, it's just a just a beautiful film. It's that Absolutely. context. Context is part of the fun with a lot of these things, anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's the same as you know. Probably no one at the time was like. You're caning it a bit, aren't you? Mm. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think that you've got, um, yeah, John Pertwee reads the book The Vampire, His Kith and Kin uh, by Montague Summers, which is actually genuinely a real, that is a real book. Mm. Um, but on the back, he's got, what was it, The Werewolf, The Vampire in Europe, and History of Witches, which should be the history of witchcraft and demonology, but they are all like, mon- so. It's really weird that they've put on the prop book like also by the same author, yeah. and it's like Montague Summers. Am I fair enough? Um, but um, and, and actually, I mean, like we were saying, you've got like the bit with when Christopher Lee is scared and everything, um, but also the bit with the when they're in the study in the first story, mm. and it's like he's over there, he's in the chair. Yeah, mm. that's actually quite unnerving. Yeah, you know that genuinely has a sort of, ugh, you know, that does feel a bit. It's the way he's saying it to her, but trying not to let Dominic see that he's <laughs> saying it. Yeah, there's just mm. something. It, it's a, as you say, I think I don't think there's a 
bad performance in this. Um, mm. And I don't think there are in Amicus. I think the the worst thing about Amicus is the fact that they literally went from strength to strength to strength, and just as they hit their perfect stride, it all fell apart, and they yeah. stopped making movies. It's such a, and it's the one thing. If we said tomorrow, do you know what? We're done with this podcast. We should probably think about wrapping it up. I would have to say, okay, then can we just for the last three weeks? finish the rest of the Amicus yeah. movies because they're the ones I love covering so is it, um, is it something like it was better that they ended when it was going good because it if it had dropped off it got it, shit. you might oh, almost yeah. lose something well I mean you've got because it's not it's not like an Amicus film but you've got like the Monster Club and I love the Monster Club yeah. but I do know that it's not it's not seen as it's not held in the same regard as like House of Drip Blood or Asylum or mm any of the sort of amicus anthologies. Um, I think also mainly that just seems to be a lot of people are very annoyed by the music, musical interludes, because they are pretty crap. They're absolutely awful. But then, I mean, but then again, you've got that, uh, talking about outstanding vignettes, one of my all-time favourites from an anthology movie is the Ingrid Pitt, Donald Presence story in that. I, I just... Is that Ingrid Pitt? I think it, I think it's Ingrid Pitt. No, 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 because that's because the Donald Pleasance one in that is where it's the husbands of. Yes, Vampire, that's the one. Yeah. And I thought Ingrid, Ingrid Pitt was the wife. No, I don't. I don't know. I don't think she is. Oh, see, I like. See, I've not watched it in such a long time, but I just remember l- loving that story, and I I just love the sort of quirkiness and the fact that the music's all oh, and the restaurant episode. Oh, mm. oh no! I need to watch it now. It's, it's a. It's, like. It is. It is a great little. It's a great. Um, it's a great uh, film. And to be honest, people always moan about the musical interludes. They're the bits where you get up, get a beer, roll a fag. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, true, yeah. You know, it's, they're, they're there as like natural discussion points. So you can sit there and go, oh, that was really good. I love Donald Pleasant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Marvellous. Yeah, just mute the terrible music. and. Uh... <laughs> but I think, yeah. The, um, also, you're not telling me Pertwee didn't have that fucking picture. Oh, yeah. That, that's just, again, I love the arrogance of he's got all his publicity photos in the around the mirror in his dressing room. And then you go home and there's just that painting of him with his fingers arched. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always think that is terrible, but I do. I always do. Whenever there's a portrait like that of someone in a film, I always think, I wonder if they said, you can do anything with that when you finish, because, like, That'd look awesome in my ass. Yes, I, oh, I, I bet, I, I, I would imagine he would have had it. Because the one thing that, from what I gather, the one thing that wouldn't have happened with John Pertwee in real life is he wouldn't have paid for his own cloak. So, <laughs> <laughs> apparently that was, a, that was a regular game of Tom Baker's at conventions, is he would enlist Sylvester McCoy and say to him, yeah, look, should we wind up, should we, mm. should we, uh, should we like, get John? And they would just sit there and claim, uh, like, have a discussion between the two of them about how much they were getting for various roles or whatever yeah. like that. Because apparently Pertwee would be like, oh. like just <laughs> frowning. What? what? How much? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right. So, Chris, has this left you hungry for more Amicus on Kingsley? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Right. 
we'll wrap it up there. Thanks ever so much for listening, everybody. Uh, we shall see you on our next episode. We are going to be covering uh, 1993's John Carpenter's Body Bags. Um, and then after that is going to be our listener request month. So we are going to get in all your requests. Uh, we are going to randomise them by putting them on in paper and sticking them in a hat or whatever and picking out two. Uh, so please get them in. You've got another week or so when this episode goes up to get them in before we get together and record again. So yeah, send them to us on Instagram or email us at info at welcome to horror.com. Uh, yeah, and we shall pick them up from there. Thanks very much for listening. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.